Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Executive Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, of course, we have to start by talking about the death of General Hospital's Jacqueline Zeman, who played Bobby for the past 45 plus years. Now, she was only 70, and to say it's a shock is an understatement. I mean, that is just way too young in my book. And plus, Jackie was just always so full of life and warm and bubbly. It's just still so hard to imagine. You know, I met Jackie over 30 years ago and had the honor of talking to her many times over the years, you know, including when I was the general hospital editor back in the mid 90s. You know, she was always so accessible and easy to talk to. But the last time I had an actual sit down with her was for a special series of interviews I did for Celebrity Page. And not to mention, she was a guest on this podcast. And it's just really inconceivable to think that she's gone. You know, I extend my deepest condolences to her daughters, Cassidy and Lacey, who we literally watched grow up through the pages of the magazine. And I know as the general hospital editor now, your connection to her was so special and you had actually just spoken to her recently. Yeah, I I mean, I've been very hard hit by this. It, It honestly doesn't feel real. Like I was just looking at my camera roll at the sweetest pictures of the two of us. And it's just very hard to process that she's gone because she was so vibrant. You know, Jackie had um, a positivity about her that is hard to capture in words. Like she had experienced loss and heartbreak and bumps in the road professionally and all the things that are just sort of unavoidable as, as one goes through life. But she was the kind of person who refused to dwell in any kind of bitterness. And that really made an impact on me. Uh, She had such an open heart. She always looked at the sunny side of things and she was so kind, you know, she radiated kindness. She radiated warmth. And I am absolutely going to miss our long talks and our hugs. Uh, Jackie passed away after a short battle with cancer and it is going to leave a gigantic hole in the GH universe to imagine the show without her, without Bobby. You know, Bobby made her debut as the naughty nurse who um, played very dirty to come between Scotty and Laura and infamously, of course, summoned her big brother Luke to town to help her with that mission. But over the years and over the course of many romances and ups and downs of all kinds, we we saw Bobby evolve into a strong matriarch. And Jackie's work in storylines like uh, BJ's death, 
Carly's arrival and the breakup of Bobby and Tony's marriage and the aftermath of Elizabeth's rape, you know, they will always be remembered as among the very best in the history of the show. She definitely took pride in her place in GH lore and she cherished the bonds that she shared with viewers and fans. And my heart, of course, goes out to her beautiful daughters who she absolutely adored, but also to her very close friends of many decades at the show, like Ken Schreiner, Lynn Herring and Christina Wagner. It's 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 just a very hard, very sad loss. You know, I can't imagine what they all must be going through over there, especially on the heels of the death of Sonia Eddy, whose epiphany was, you know, just written out a month ago on camera, you know, so it feels more recent than her actual death. Mm-hmm. But with the amount of time these actors spend together and the intimacy of the nature of the work they do, you know, the bonds between them are so strong and it must be you know, impossible for them to wrap their heads around these losses. You know, I think about Tony Geary, who spoke about her so lovingly in our 60th anniversary special. And I, I, you know, it's just, again, I I feel like we're both saying the same thing, but it's just, it's such a premature loss that it just hits in a different way. Um, You know, I'm sure the show will give Bobby and Jackie a proper send off. Um, I just wonder if they're going to wait until the writer's strike is over so they can give it, you know, the time and attention it deserves and come up with the right way to do it. Yeah, it really has been an, an almost incomprehensible season of loss at the show. First, Sonia, then beloved producer Nika Garland, and now Jackie, all three of whom died too young and quite unexpectedly. Uh, I think the entire daytime community is going to be reeling for quite some time. I mean, Jackie had former co-stars and industry friends uh, at every show, really. And it's it's a very somber day. Um, Now on screen at GH, as you mentioned, the show mounted an absolutely beautiful tribute to the character of Epiphany, whose death was scripted in the wake of the death of Sonia, her portrayer. And then this past week, the show also killed off Victor Cassidyne, which means that we have seen the end of Charles Shaughnessy's run on the show. I spoke to him about his departure in an interview in our new issue, and he thinks that this might not be the last of Victor. Uh, We did see a body, but he thinks it's noteworthy that we did not see him actually die on screen. And he notes that Victor has evaded what seemed like certain death before. So I'm definitely curious about uh, who we might see slide into the main villain slot on the Port Charles canvas now that Victor is a goner, at least for now. Well, I am certainly hoping that they find a way to bring him back. Resurrection, as we know, is not a new thing on shows. So he could easily be back in Port Charles before we know it. Um, But our guest today actually knows a thing or two about villainy. It's Michael Corbett, who played Young and the Restless's infamous David Kimball, among others, but has amassed an impressive resume since leaving daytime. So let's get him on the line and hear all about it. Hi, Michael. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? I, you know, I I cannot complain. I'll be honest. <laughs> That's the best thing to be able to say. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mara and I are thrilled to have you. We um, have actually been talking about you since we started doing the Young Restless special issue. We were like, oh, we have to get Michael Corbett here. He's got some stories ooh, to ooh, share. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I got a lot of Young and the Restless stories and, and even more since our 50th anniversary. So... I bet you do. But we're going to start with where you were born. You are a Philadelphia native. Your father worked for the IRS and your mother was an artist. And from the outside. Thank God for the internet, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. You learned about me. That's Uh, right. Um, Yes. That's all all I care. Born in South Philadelphia. Um, 
right in the heart of the Italian district because I'm 100% Italian. Uh, Michael Corbett is not my real name. <laughs> uh, and yeah, my my dad worked for, uh, he was a big wing in the Internal Revenue, so I'm really good with accounting. And my <laughs> mom was a very, very talented artist, uh, portrait artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so that's that's where the beginnings all began. Well, how did your own interest in performing come about? You know, uh, I had a really wonderful, blessed story. I went to uh, University of Pennsylvania because I was going to be uh, a marine biologist. So, of course, go to a school in Pennsylvania. But that's where all my uh, my family had gone. So I went to UPenn and I immediately got into some of the shows and they had the Harold, the Harold Prince Theater there. And so I was a freshman and I was doing one of the big, you know, whatever it's called, senior musicals or whatever at, at the university. Uh, and it was a production of Kiss Me Kate. And um, Harold Prince came to see the show and said, after the show, he came up to me. He said, you know, you ought to think about going in a theater. I was out of that school so fast. And I immediately transferred to the Boston Conservatory of Music for a musical theater degree. And that's where I finished out uh, the next couple of years, learning everything there was to learn about musical theater. And moved to New York and got my first Broadway show in about a week or two in New York. And that's how it all began. Okay, so two-part question. Number one, what did your parents think of this pivot? And number two, were you in New York long enough without making it as an actor to have a day job? Uh, good questions. My parents hated it. My father especially hated it. Like, what? You're in University of Pennsylvania. Do something serious. I'm like, yeah, you know, no, I kind of wanted, I think, I said, you know, somebody really big said I should go into, into theater, so I'm doing it. So they hated it. Um, I mean, to this day, I mean, I my, I mean, to my father's passed on, but he used to always say things like, "You're an actor. You you can't you you can't buy a house. You can't do it. You're an actor. You live in a you live in a trailer at the YMCA." You know, <laughs> his whole concept of being an actor was get a real job. Uh, and um, no, I uh, got to New York. Literally, my first week, I I was I'm very um, industrious, so I immediately went where all young actors want to get a job. I went to Joe Allen's, and which is right in the theater district in New York, for those who don't know. And I got a job as a waiter. And I got my first, I did my first night as a waiter. It was very exciting. And I was able to quit the next day because I got my first Broadway show within like 10 days. So Amazing. I did have a day job in New York. And I just recently, my last trip back to New York, I went back to Joe Allen's because I just wanted to just experience it for a moment and and just you know thank the universe that uh wow uh i was able to you know make it from there into the rest of my career that is an unbelievable story yeah. i love yeah. it um, i was gonna be i'd be a terrible waiter terrible waiter <laughs> so would i um now your broadway debut was in musical nefertiti which also starred robert lupone and michael nori two other actors who also established careers on New York soaps. Um, so what do you remember about that first Broadway experience? My, uh, the thing I remember the most is because I was very young and, you know, I was out of school, you know, two weeks. And I remember on opening night, um, the, it, it was a, a beautiful musical. And, it, you know, because of things happen, whatever, where they say, how long did it run? I say, all night. So <laughs> <laughs> it just... There was a big producer at the time and he was involved in mounting Porgy and Bess, whatever, and, and it, it didn't get the chance that it, it should have. Um, and I remember in the opening scene, we were all Egyptian slaves and I'm in like a loincloth or whatever. 
um, on the stage and it's a big opening number. And I remember the curtain going up on opening night and I started crying. <laughs> and I just remember that moment. I remember that moment all my life. I just, you know, tears are rolling and I'm starting to sing the opening number. Uh, it was very, uh, it was very emotional, very exciting. And that's something I've, I've kind of never forgotten that moment. It makes me tear up a little bit right now, thinking about it. Uh, I want to so get teary. Really, yeah, really pretty amazing. Well, Michael, little did you know that a loincloth was going to be like the most amount of clothes you'd be wearing for a few years after daytime got a hold of you. Yeah, um, isn't that funny? <laughs> I guess I should have known it was a precursor of what my years on Ryan's Hope and Search, Search for Tomorrow, especially. I was in a lot of Speedos. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, which we'll get into, uh, much like you had to. So your Broadway <laughs> career was actually chugging very nicely along when you were tapped to make your daytime debut on Ryan's Hope in the role of Michael Pavel Jr., who was quite the cad and uh, bedded both Ray, played by Louise Schaefer, and her daughter, Kim, played by Kelly Moroni, who a couple years down the line ended up shooting him dead in a blaze of impassioned fury. But you, you ended up in this huge storyline that attracted a ton of attention, but originally you were only supposed to be around for a three-day gig. So talk us through what happened at the onset of your time at Ryan's Hope that led to this long-term contract. Um, I think at the time, if I remember, I was in, maybe it was in, I was in Greece, maybe. Uh, I was in a Broadway show at the time, and I remember, and I, my uh, agent called and said, hey, we got, you know, got this job for you, you're going to go in for a couple of days on on Ryan's Hope. And I went, oh my God, that's so exciting. Um, and I got, you know, because on, on Ryan's Hope at the time was an amazing woman named Helen, Helen Gallagher was also a huge Broadway uh, musical theater star and a great cast. So I went on for three days. And at the end of the three days, uh, my agent called and said, I guess they like you because they're offering you a contract. Um, and the, the rest is history. They started writing for my character. I had great storylines with Kelly Maroney, who I, you know, we're still friends to this day, and Louise. Um, and we and I just had an amazing run uh, with an incredible, fun, fun character sleeping with a mother and a daughter, which seemed to end up being my signature in daytime. Uh, and it was an, inc an incredible couple of years. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1981, you actually appeared on the cover of People magazine alongside Chris Furneaux from Guiding Light. He played Alan and Sean Dysert, Dysert, don't yeah, remember, Dysert, who played Sean Cudahyano, my children. So what do you remember about shooting that cover, which I wish we could show everyone because you're like mid unbuttoning your shirt buttons. It's so oh, racy. Yeah. <laughs> It was um, it was for I think we were called the soap's most lovable cads, and uh, I, you probably well, you, oh, wait a minute I'm going to point to it right now it's on the wall behind me which no one can see that's we call I call that behind me my wall of shame <laughs> out of my you know soap opera covers and all kinds of stuff so no one can see that but you guys um, uh, yeah so we were we were like the cads at the time and I I mean it was all very surreal for me because I was you know, I was very young and this was my first big television job. And uh, it was all happening like a real, uh, like a, a, it was a whirlwind for me. So uh, I, I just remember the lot of press and a lot of excitement about it. And I, I didn't know anything other than that. That was jump on television and all of a sudden there's all this uh, hoopla. So it was kind of a big blur, uh, very exciting and a wonderful time at the, at, the, at the same time. And I got to work with amazing people and amazing writers. And yeah, that was, it was, it was I had so much fun on that show. Mm -hmm. What are your like standout memories of actually being on the set day to day or working with some of the folks that you worked with? 
the one funny story I was I I was try I remember is that in the in the day we used to do soap operas differently. So how they were shot, you would do them like they were plays. So you would show up in the morning early, you'd have your coffee, and you'd go down into the rehearsal room, and you would rehearse the whole show scene by scene by scene by scene like a little mini play. And then you would go back up, then you'd start to get in makeup and hair, and then you'd go down for a dress rehearsal later. And then you'd go down to the stage and shoot it just like a play so that you'd be standing you'd be standing in your set waiting for the other set to finish and the cameras to roll over to yours. And I remember there was this woman, and it was before I started working with Louise Schaffer, but she was in the show. And I remember seeing this, this woman, you know, doing her stuff. But then by the time dress rehearsal would come, this woman would walk into the into the dress rehearsal stage like Grace Kelly. She's the most spectacular looking, beautiful woman. And I finally got up the nerve one day to say, you know, your 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 work is so amazing. How do you how do you get away with not having rehearsal? And she went, What are you talking about? She said, I'm the one in the in the in the scarf and the giant glasses with no makeup. I had she was unrecognizable in rehearsal. <laughs> And I would work, you know, I'd see her across the room, never had any idea who it was. And then she'd walk out as Grace Kelly. Um, so that, I always remember that as being sort of a really fun, uh, a, a fun moment. And I learned so much from watching her and some of the other actors, uh, you know, Helen Gallagher and all those other ones that were just amazing, amazing pros. And I was a kid. Right. So it was really a, an incredible learning experience for me. Mm -hmm. Well, you also didn't have to get a day job when you left Ryan's Hope because you were out of work literally for like a few weeks before Search for Tomorrow snapped you up to play Warren Carter. So how did yeah. that come about? Uh, yeah, I mean, when they told me I was, I was, you know, going to be killed by both the women I was sleeping with, um, I'm like, okay, great. And, and <laughs> I remember one of the wonderful things too, when I left Ryan's Hope, he was a real, the character was a real clothes horse. And in the day they could get away with this. And I probably shouldn't even, well, I'm sure the customer has, has passed on by now, but the customer for the show, um, I had this huge wardrobe. She said, you know what, honey, just take it with you. It took me three cab rides of armfuls of suits and clothes. So I think by the time I unpacked all the clothes and we're, you know, figuring out where I'm going to put them all in my little apartment on the Upper West Side, I got a call saying, hey, you know, they, they're putting you on a contract over at, at Search for Tomorrow. So uh, I was immediately dumped into that and, and creating that role um, with a whole new family and a whole new cast of, of people who were amazing. So, and you know, yet, again, a whirlwind. Like not to call you out, Michael, but this CAD thing was not something you left behind at the Ryan's Hope <laughs> studio. It definitely followed you over to search for tomorrow, as did this propensity for being shirtless on camera. So we we actually have amazing photos of you in our archive of you in the aforementioned Speedo alongside your bathing suit plaid leading ladies at that time, Lisa Peluso, who played Wendy and Cynthia Gibb, who played Susie. Mm -hmm. um, it was taken during the storyline where Warren wed Susie, then cheated on her with Wendy, then tried to make his marriage uh, work because he found out that Susie was in line to inherit a million dollars. Hmm, I wonder what this is reminding me of. Anyway, hmm. very, very naughty. But tell us what Lisa and Cynthia were like to work with in that story. Oh, I mean, they're both they're both so sweet and so wonderful. Um, yeah, Lisa. I mean, Lisa and I were like bad children. I remember at the time, so we would we had so much fun together. Uh, Cindy also was. She was always very she was very serious and very committed. 
and later went on to be a very successful actress and um and both so beautiful and and you know it's funny i was okay this is a weird story but i'm i'm at a um uh like a cabaret and andrea mccardle was singing and she's talking about her life and she says you know i was on this soap she said i was never meant for television but i was on this soap and i was playing this character named wendy on search for tomorrow she said and then they told me my character had some disease and i went into the hospital and i came out as somebody else and this other character this other actress who looked like sophia loren and and she ended up having like a hot boyfriend because I they never gave me boyfriends or anything. So she had this hot boyfriend and this huge storyline after that. So I went up to her after the show and I went, hey, Andrea, I just want you to know I was the hot boyfriend. I said, that was my, you played Wendy who was later taken over by by um, um, Lisa Peluso. And then they brought in the love interest and that was me. So I said, it's too bad. We could have been making wild, passionate love for years if you hadn't been replaced on that show. So, and then, and then I, I guess after Cindy left, Cindy uh, Gibb, then they brought in another gal named Terry Oath to play Susie. And then after that, they brought in someone else. Nor in between, they brought in a, a woman named uh, or a gal named uh, Elizabeth Swackhammer, who, believe it or not, to this day is one of my dear friends, and we work together now. Um, I do a lot of uh, voiceover work as well, and she and I work together all the time. And we joke about it whenever we meet people who are like, oh, we used to be married. Yeah. <laughs> so we go back, you know, for 35, 40 years now. That, that is amazing. Incredible. There's a column in the magazine called You Heard It Here, where we excerpt, uh, you know, juicy quotes from actor interviews. And I found one from you, Michael, where you referenced uh that you and Lisa Peluso had like the raciest love scenes. You said, I remember a hot tub and something involving chickens. What was the chicken? What was the chicken? I don't <laughs> Did we like, did someone throw a chicken into the hot tub? <laughs> I can't. Oh my Dinner. God. Dinner, Dinner is served. <laughs> so here's a funny story that happened with Search for Tomorrow. At one point in Search for Tomorrow, we had to go live because we lost the tape. Because shows back then were done on tape. Now, of course, that was all a ruse, a publicity ruse. Our, our executive producer at the time was this wonderful California, um, oh, big red hair. She was just Joanna, can't remember her name, uh, but she was an amazing executive producer. I loved her. She decided that we were going to go live as a big publicity thing, but it was because we lost the tape. So we had to do this whole episode live and I remember Lisa and I were like, we had wardrobe changes in and I remember we're live and I'm trying to tie my tie before I get out the door for the next scene. It was very nerve wracking. But later, I, I, it was either Bob or Tom Harlan um, was, was around at the time and he ended up writing Soap Dish based on that incident that happened at Search for Tomorrow. So whenever I remember when Soap Dish came in, I went, oh my God, that's us. That's us. <laughs> Uh, but that was a big, that was that live episode was a big deal for everybody because it was the first time we were ever doing it live like they used to do in the old yeah, days. Right. Were you nervous? Do you remember? Oh, I was terrified because <laughs> mostly because of the, the the costume change stuff. And and I just remember specifically, I can picture to this day, 
me standing at the doorway, trying to tie my tie, thinking, oh my God, oh, please just tie, please tie so I can get out the door to make it to the next scene live. Oh my gosh. Um, now on search, you also work closely with Jane Krakowski, future star of 30 Rock and Kimmy Schmidt. Among other projects, she played T.R. Kendall. So what do you remember about her as a co-star? I remember, poor, poor, poor Jane, I, my character kidnapped her at one point. Right when the, a new producer had come in near the near the end of my run, and she kind of twisted my character into making him a little more evil than than I was I loved, but she had me kidnap Jane Krakowski and lock her up and feed her rats. So I remember poor poor Jane. She was oh god, could she have been 13, 14 at the time? She would she'd be chained to a wall and and. We'd have to do these scenes of like, Jane, I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> and I'd have to like pretend, you know, they'd put in like fake rats and all that. Oh God, it was, it was crazy. But she was the sweetest, really determined, you know, young actress at the time and, and funny and great sense of humor and a really good, a really good sport. <laughs> amazing. Uh, amazing. So did that sort of uh, precipitate your exit from the show, this turning him into a more, you know, sort of irredeemable villain, if you will? Yeah, I think that's, I think that was sort of the plan was to make him a little bit more, uh, um, make him a little bit badder. And then what, what then really precipitated me, you know, leaving the show was like, they shot me. So my two, my two, I was sleeping with my wife and then her sister. And of course they found out and just like on Ryan's Hope, they, they shot me. So I basically usually sleep with a mother and daughter or sister and sister, and then they shoot me. Claim to fame. Kind of how it went. <laughs> well, a year after you left Search for Tomorrow, you made your young and restless debut as one of the most memorable villains in history, David Kimball, who died one of the most memorable deaths in all of soap history. So did you move to LA? I will correct you. We don't know that he's right. dead. Right. presumed death presumed death i'm sure in go. all of soap <laughs> history um now did you move to la to do ynr or did ynr come after you after you decided to head west i think um i think i actually was still living in new york and then again i'm always very lucky i i go on with soap for a short period a stint and then they just continue me on and extend my contract which happened at young dresses they just kept extending and extending and then you know i was there for however many seven eight nine years i can't remember but that, um, so I think I was living in New York when I got that job and flew out and I got to work. My character initially started out as male secretary to the character of Jill Abbott, who was at the time played by Brenda Dixon. Um, she then exited the show shortly after I arrived and the spectacular and amazing and wonderful, one of my dearest friends of the world, Jess Walton, became the new Jill Abbott and is still there being Jill Abbott, being everything amazing that you can be. Yes, she is. Uh, <laughs> so once again, a womanizer and, and, and David did not keep things professional with Jill. So what stands out to you when you think back on the early days of David and getting your feet wet on that set? Um, one was that uh, the character of David really, the, Bill Bell, who was just, an incredible storyteller. Um, I think. I think early on he he said what um, something about there was a book called What Makes Sammy Run, and it was basically what the the musical How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying was based on. And I think he made mention of that 
to me early on, oh, that's where this guy's coming from, is that he's there to make himself better, be successful, be powerful, be rich, be like, he wants to create his world. And that's kind of what David um, David Kimball started to do. And, you know, people said, oh, he, he was an evil character. Like, he, he never thought of himself as being evil or being or doing evil things. He always thought of himself, meaning me, I always thought of him as um, having a real reason for all the things that he did, because whatever his background was, didn't allow him to be born famous and rich and, and um, nothing was handed to him. So he had to work for everything that he had. He only knew that one of the best ways to do it was to sleep with rich women, um, marry them, and then hope to inherit their fortunes. Mm -hmm. So that's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> and he started with Jill. And then when he saw that uh, he Jill had a, a rich granddaughter, which was Nina, go after Nina. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of his progression through the whole series was always about trying to get what he didn't have. Mm -hmm. Um so I, that's how I always rationalized it for him. Mm -hmm. Well, but I got okay. to do Sorry. fun stuff. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Amazing stuff. <laughs> and certainly David, I feel like is, is a character that would have made your previous soap characters proud as well. Um, and in the end, he tried to get his hands on Nina's money, as you said, and what must have felt very familiar to you, he was plugged with five bullets upon discovering, <laughs> upon Nina discovering what a louse he was. So tell us about working with Trisha Cast and playing that epic storyline with her. Um, Trisha is amazing. Trisha is a really, really good actress. Uh, so it was all always very, it was really easy doing scenes with her, both and, and with Jess Walton too, because they're just really great actresses. So all you have to do is know your lines and show up and 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 emotionally see what happens as the scenes unfold because uh, they're both so good. And it was really, <laughs> it was just fun because David was so manipulative and intending to be manipulative. So it was always great to, um, you could see him always processing like, well, if I say this, I'm going to get this reaction. Or if I do this, I mean, he used to take Jill out and sing to her in the night, in nightclubs to try to seduce her. Cause I was, you know, my, my musical theater background. So they wrote that in and same thing with Nina. Um, I was always thinking, Dave was always thinking the next step to try to manipulate her to get what he wanted. And then, you know, whatever she shot him. Um, but he got out of that in a way because he, he pretended to be in a coma and she was exonerated for, for shooting me. And then David pretended to be in a coma and then all kinds of crazy stuff happened. Indeed. Well, before we get into that crazy stuff, to get to Nina and more importantly to him, her money, David had to go through her very protective besties, Cricket and Danny. And he played dirty, including framing Danny for cocaine possession. Um, but he did get to attend their lavish 1990 nuptials in Hawaii. Uh, so tell us first about just the experience of working with Michael Damian and Laura Lee Bell, who played Danny and Cricket. The the one other thing was, it was really kind of fun because I, I was always, the character was always playing, you know, manipulating behind their back, but always pretending to be their best friend. So it was always a, like a double a double thing going on at all times, but they were great. We had a great time. I remember the Hawaii shoot was so much fun. Um, you know, you put the five of us, I guess it was Danny. Craig, I think there were five, four of us, five of us. I can't remember. The it was, it was Danny cricket, Nina, Gina, and you. Okay. Five. And you know, there we are. We're like bad kids in Hawaii and we're <laughs> shooting and working. And it was wonderful. It was the first time I'd ever, um, I think it's the first time I ever was on a soap and we went on location. Uh, back on Search for Tomorrow, 
we were stranded on a desert island because we were captured by pirates or something. I can't, oh my God, I can't even remember. I just remember seeing photos of me and all of us in syndicate. We're like in a ripped, you know, ripped in all the right places, clothing on a desert <laughs> island. But it was really just a bunch of sand in the back of the studio. <laughs> the Young and the Restless was the first time when we're, I was on location for a soap. And it was great. It was great fun. And they, they're, listen, they're wonderful to work with. And, you know, just being, I was able to, you know, see them both just a couple of weeks ago at our big 50th anniversary reunion. So that was really, that was a fun experience. That. Mm -hmm. Um, now, as David's reign of terror was nearing its end, a lot happened, including him asking a plastic surgeon to make him look like David Hasselhoff, a fun inside joke for people who knew him as Snapper. But the surgeon instead carved the word killer into his forehead. So what do you remember about the makeup application that was required to muck up your lovely forehead? Boy, that that was tough um, because at the same time as he was all scarred up by the plastic and I, and I remember even the day I day filming that when I first took the bandages off so to speak and then looked in the mirror I mean I was even me personally was even shocked because the makeup was so good that I remember being really upset just emotionally having a reaction when we were filming because when I really looked in the mirror and looked at it it was very, upset, very upsetting because killer was backwards because it had to be backwards so that it would read correctly on camera. So the first time I saw it correctly was in the mirror and I was like, whoa. Uh, so the, the makeup of it was very time consuming. But at the same time, I was also, because this is what you do in a soap, I was pretending to be another character named Jim because I was trying to then at the same time seduce and marry, which I did, my Nina's mother. So, of course, I was sleeping with her and married to Nina and then also sleeping with screwing her mother and trying to marry her mother at the same. I want to cover all my bases. Deja vu know. all over again. Yes. A lot of sleeping with a mother and daughter again. But in this one, I had to be a different character. So I had to do prosthetic changes. Um, I remember we did um, the makeup artist. We were doing a test for, for the character of Jim and who had a bit of a Southern accent. And so we... Uh, I remember we put it all on and I, and he said, let me bring you up to Bill's office. So we walked up to Bill, Bill Bell's office at the time and the makeup artist said, hey, Bill, I wanted you to meet something. And Bill looked at me and went, hello, nice to meet you. And we all just stood there for a minute and the makeup artist went, it's Michael Corbett. It's David Kimball. And he went, oh, oh, it's good. It's good. <laughs> so that, so the, that was it. So love it. But there were days when I had to change between the two makeups in one day and then back again. So I'd start out with the killer and then go to gym and then have all that ripped off and then put the killer back on. It was, I just remember it being, it was really hard on my skin. Um, cause it's, it's a lot, a lot of changes. That was a lot of work during that period yeah, when I'm playing I bet. Both, those, both those sides of, of David Kimball. It was a lot. And, and I feel like something you would not even hear about today, they would have shot all of your scenes as one and then all of your scenes as the other. Like just the idea that you would go in and out of makeup, it seems inconceivable with the way they film today. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that now because you could no. change them around and compartmentalize them like a right. big jigsaw. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Well, was was the character of Jim and getting to do the accent and all of that a fun departure for you? Yeah. Yeah. It was totally fun because here I'm playing, you know, all the other stuff with David, the angst and the anger and all that. And Jim had to be just this wonderful, wonderful person who was just loving on um flow on his on on the character flow yeah 
So yeah, that was really fun. And then I have to go back and then put on killer again and be all angst ridden. So it was great to, I got to do so much fun stuff. My, one of my favorite things that I used to do was David created this big office to pretend that he was very successful and he had a little button under the desk, you know, push the button and he'd answer the phone and then speak in Chinese. Oh, I like you. And because I'm speaking to my, you know, clients in China, uh, great fun stuff that was so, so creative and yeah. so much fun to do. It's very clear, I think, looking back on the like the nooks and crannies of what happened with David, that Bill Bell was very inspired by him. Oh, he kept, he he used to stop me in the hall and and uh, one time, was a funny story, he, he stopped me in the hall all the time and he'd go, oh, good stuff for you, good stuff for you. And he um, one time stopped me and he said, this is going to be your biggest challenge ever. And I said, Bill, why, why? And he walked away. What it was, was I was going to be shot by Nina and have to be in a coma with my eyes open for four weeks. That was the big challenge. So you can't say anything. You have to sit there with your eyes open for four weeks. So he was always mischievous and always coming up with like just great stuff for David to do. It was such a well-written character. Yeah. Well, was that your biggest challenge? That seems like it would be challenging. <laughs> it was hard, but there was a, there were, yeah, it was hard. It was hard, but there's, there were so many things that David got to do that uh, that were just as equally challenging. <laughs> well, David's reign of terror finally did come to an end while trying to elude Paul Williams at the masquerade ball where he had gone into wolf costume with the intention of killing Nina Cricket and Danny and was mm -hmm. crushed to death, presumably, by a trash mm -hmm. compactor. Um, so what do you remember about filming David's gruesome end? It was, there was a lot happening those, that, that week or two because it was the masquerade ball, which again, lots of makeup changes. You know, I was, I was the David Hasselhoff makeup and then the, you know, the killer and then Jim and then into the masquerade ball. So there's a lot going on. It was, it was a big buildup. That was a huge, they play that, they rerun that whole sequence so all the time now mm -hmm. over holidays and whatever. It's like, you know, it was like a big climax for the series. So um, I do remember walking in for the first time and seeing that giant compactor that they had built. Um, and then the concept of me sort of falling into it. So um, I just remember that's all that they, they, it was like, you're going to fall in it. We're going to hear screams and then that's it. And then there'll be a hand that shows up at the end. So uh, the way I always pictured it is that he falls in and those compactors were huge. It wasn't like, a, you know, in your kitchen compactor. <laughs> chicken shredders I mean, you know, like we, you see in the horror movies where they're always shoving somebody's arm in one of those shredders. right um, but it was a giant industrial one and, I, and always in my head was that he fell in and you know to access the compactor there's a huge you know access doors that, in the, in the one side of it so that my concept was always he fell in got out the access doors with a homeless person there he shoved them in slammed the doors the thing closes and that's somebody else's hand and meanwhile, David Kimball is out waiting, just waiting to come just back. betting and marrying mothers and daughters across the land. Who, you know, I've heard what's been really fun is over, especially since this fifth, 50th anniversary, I've had so many um, writers, uh, uh, people from other magazines and things all coming up with all their storylines of what's happened. One thing, though, that, that stood out that had happened, I was doing an interview on a, on a uh, television interview. And I got a note from a divorce lawyer. And he said, I just want you, it was a fan of young I said, I just want you to understand. He said, um, because Nina declared you dead and thus your marriage was was 
no longer valid. The fact that you're not dead, when you come back, you're still married to Nina. So Ooh. I'm like, oh, oh, that would be fun. That would be. That, I would just love to just show up at the door. Hello. Hello, <laughs> Nina. Like, He's hello, so Nina. Hello. <laughs> and whatever it may be, maybe he, is he redeemed himself? Is he not? Is he, I, there's so, you know, I think he would come back and, and pretend to be redeemed, but then really ultimately, you know, want to seek revenge. So yeah, I love this stuff. idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. is it a point of pride for you that that story is so well remembered that they, you know, that the death is the death or death in quotes is still talked about as one of the most memorable ways a villain has ever, you know, met their maker. And indeed it is still rerun and held up in this regard. Yeah, I'm so proud of that, but it's, you know, it it was it was a village. So it was great writing, great directing. It was the whole cast. It was like, that was a whole period which was just so incredibly well done. And I was so happy to be, you know, that we call it the villain, that villain that people remember on that show is, you know, being one of the best villains. It always gets written up as, you know, the top. And Kimball yeah. and Brown, who I just saw also, uh, you know, being like the top two villains all the time um, in daytime. Yeah. So that, hey, I'm, I'm really proud of that. As well, you should be. Um, now, as much as you made an incredible mark in daytime, your career post daytime is beyond robust and beyond impressive. And I mean, we barely know where to start. So let's start with you've parlayed your real estate expertise into best selling books and hosting gigs and TV appearances too long to mention. But let's start with how did real estate end up becoming such a key part of your portfolio, if you will? Uh, you know, I was always interested in real estate since I was a kid. So I remember when I was on Ryan's Hope. Um, we used to get these things called overage checks back in the day where if you work more days than you were guaranteed, you'd get a check. And I remember I got a $10,000 overage check and I was like, oh my God. And because of what house prices were at the time, I got a couple of those and I, I, I bought the house next door to my grandmom's in Collingswood, New Jersey. And I fixed it up and, you know, made it, made it from a two bedroom or three bedroom. And I can't remember what I did, but I kind of fixed it up and I put it right back on the market and I made a lot of money. And I was like, wow, this is really great. So I have always all my life been, been buying properties and fixing them up. And that's why I ended up writing books about that. Um, so I've always had that sort of real estate thing. And then after I, after I finished with Young and the Restless, my producer came to me from Extra, the TV show Extra, and said, come in and meet the people at Extra. I met with the executive producer and, and uh, she said, what do you like to do? And I said, well, you know, I like real estate. I like travel. She went, great, you're hired. And I've been doing, it's been, what, 18, 19 seasons on Extra. Pretty um, amazing. Host, and then now, you know, becoming a producer and creating Mansions and Millionaires, which is the spinoff sp series for Extra's Mansions and Millionaires. Um, all about celebrity real estate, travel, all that stuff. So it's all just kind of happened naturally. I mean, you're the poster child for like the secret or something. I mean, it's really, it's really incredible. Uh, in all your years with Extra, is there something that you would hold up as a favorite or most pinch me assignment? Yeah, um, I, yes, I would say there were two. One, well, one is I get to travel to the most amazing places in the world and, and be treated, you know, like a prince while we're shooting. Um, so, you know, I think uh, I'd say either it's a toss up between Bora Bora or, uh, or Tahiti would be Bora Bora, Bora Bora, uh, yeah, I think Bora Bora, 
because we would stay at one of the most spectacular places and and we were taken out one day to a, a private island where the dining room was set up in the water and fish would just be all around you and you're being served by butlers and i mean it's just i've gotten to do some amazing things on extra and it's really been fantastic and now you know i have two emmys from it so that's really that's really great and also i've learned how to become a producer while being on extra and i've been able to parlay that into now producing other shows well of course i know you are an actor yourself but is there anyone that you have met through extra that you've been starstruck or tongue-tied by <laughs> um you know the good news is i i never had to deal too much with the celebrity aspect of extra but i do remember one time i i, I think i remember it was meryl streep came into the into the offices went back when we were in offices and she i think she came with her like little little smart car or whatever just by herself and just was like hi everybody just so delightful and so real and just really remarkable. So yeah, but I didn't I didn't have to deal with a lot of celebrities on the show very often because I was dealing with, with real estate and celebrity homes. Dealing and, with and their houses, yeah. With their houses, not them, which is much better. <laughs> so many people listening may be familiar with Tyler Henry, the young uh, clairvoyant medium who starred on E's Hollywood Medium with Tyler Henry and now stars on Netflix's Life After Death. What fewer people may know is that you not only discovered him, mm -hmm. but are the producer of that series. So tell us the story of how you met Tyler. It was about nine years ago, and I was at a Christmas party here in Hollywood, and a friend of mine was a, came up to me and he said, hey, see that kid over there? And apparently, he was bullied and beaten in high school and really, you know, had a, has a real and had to drop out of high school. And, and oh, he, he talks to the dead. I was like, yeah, OK, right. <laughs> so I, I said, well, bring him over. Um, and, I, and I said, so I, I, I hear you talk to the dead. And he said, uh-huh. I said, OK, um, can you talk to some of my dead people? And he said, sure. So I said, come over tomorrow. So he came over to my house. His mom brought him over to my house, dropped him off. And he, I told him nothing. He gave me a reading that just, it, I, 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 my mouth was open. I mean, I couldn't believe the things that he told me about people that had died. I mean, I, I was testing him. I would give him a name and he would tell me things that just nobody could have ever known. There was, a, I gave him a name of some, but one example, I gave him a name of someone. I won't say the name, but I gave just a, a first name. And, um, and he said, he started to do his thing and he started to go, oh, oh gosh, uh, Wow, I'm, I I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And he said, I, "But I can get air. It's not my lungs. I'm not drowning. I can't. I, what happened?" He said. He said, "This person, this person took his own life. But, but I I can't breathe. I don't understand. My lungs aren't working, but I'm not drowning." And he said, "Do you know what happened?" I said, "Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we can say this or share this, but yeah, he 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 committed suicide by put, putting himself in a plastic bag." And at that moment, I thought, "Oh my, I'm I'm, see, I'm having chills right now. You can't see it, but I'm having chills right now." Um, at that moment, I went, oh, my God, this kid, how can he possibly know this? And so I was testing him. To, by the end of that reading, I called uh, a producing partner of mine and I said, we have to create a TV series about this kid. So I said to, I said to Tyler, I said, do you think you could do this in front of camera? And he went, well, I don't know, maybe. And we hired our crew. We brought people in. We brought in test subjects that he didn't know. No one knew. And one after another, Tyler would just sit there and read them and blow them away to the point that at the end of the day, 
the the uh, camera people came to us and went, okay, come on, you're feeding him information from the other room, aren't you? I'm like, no, we're not. And we ended up, I was able to sell his show like within three months from that sizzle reel that, that we created. Um, so within three months, we had a TV series. And so we went on to then um, develop it for E!, and we had four amazing series, uh, seasons on E, Hollywood Medium, because they wanted him to read all celebrities. So he read almost 250 celebrities. Um, so we have great, you know, I have great producing partners and production company partners. Uh, and we have had, had such great success with it. That's incredible. Um, yeah. And I'm a full believer. So are you typically present on set with him when he does on camera readings? Um, and also, what do you consider to be the most memorable celebrity readings he's done? Wow. Um, yes. Uh, most of the time, I, either I'm on set or I, I see the dailies, you know, from from that from that day. Um, there were some, I mean, there's just so many. Uh, uh, Monica Potter was one I just remember, or um, um, oh my gosh, she's a, a host on. She was a host on E. Um, but what happens is sometimes we never know who he's going to read. He could end up reading someone in another room. So with like right. Monica Monica Potter, he ended up reading someone that was in the kitchen. It was a friend of hers, and it's just it's just astounding. Um, I mean, he's you know he's read everyone. Sophia Vergara, J uh, Jim Jim Parsons, um, Rebel Wilson. Um, I mean, he brought through Whitney Houston when he read uh, uh, Bobby Brown. I mean, just it's been astounding. So I see it time and time again. So I also produced his live tour around the country with my with my producing partner. And, and you know, he has 2,000, 3,000 sold out seat theaters. And he just picks people out of the audience and tells them stuff that nobody could possibly ever know. So yeah. it's it's I don't know how he does it time and time again. I, I, I look at him and go, you're just crazy you know we go backstage afterwards like how do you do that and you're like well, I just that's what i was hearing so and he's such as the sweet he's the sweetest kid he's amazing so then we went then we did our latin last season we did our netflix series life after death and we just got nominated for an emmy yes you did congratulations that. that's, that's so exciting because it's very validating mm -hmm. um yeah, so that's really, really exciting. So hopefully, you know, over the next, I guess, another month from now, we'll know if we if we win or not. Yes. But it's been great. I love producing that stuff. It's just been really rewarding knowing that that message also is being put out to the world that that you know there there's more to the to to the world than what we know, and that our loved ones are connected. And I'm I'm such a believer. I've lost a lot a lot of people in my life, and it's helped me tremendously with my grief because I know they're still around there somewhere. They're, they're, they're there. They're watching us. Mm -hmm. Makes me feel better. Yeah. Did he ever read you again after that initial encounter? Yeah. Yeah. There have been times where I've had some other losses and he's he's given me some uncanny explanations of, of things. So, uh, yeah, I was never, I was a skeptic completely, but I'm now, I'm now a believer that people do have the ability to um, sense contact or, or pull in information that most of us, 95, 99% of us don't have the access to do, but there are people that can, and I'm a big believer in that. Mm -hmm. So it's been, it's been a, a great thing in my life, as well as 
I get to produce these amazing television series. Right, right. Yeah. Um, now, is there any anything else that, you know, another area you'd like to go into in producing? You know, you've done now um, extra reality uh, reality shows, I guess you could say. Is that you want to do something uh -huh. dramatic or musical or? Yeah, I, uh, two, well, one in particular, I have a scripted series that I'm partnering with somebody quite famous that um, we were doing just in the middle of pitching this past week or two before the writer strike. So our writer showrunner that we have obviously can't not allowed to talk. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's on hold for the moment. But yeah, I, you know, I, I look forward to doing that. I look forward to doing uh, another play. I just did a, a wonderful play, a world premiere of a new play just recently, this like past six months ago. Um, so that was really exciting. Um, so I, I don't know what's next. We do have another we're just closing in on a final deal for uh, another big Tyler Henry project. Um, and yeah, I, That's cool. I got a lot of fun things going on. Yeah, you do. Steph, we have to add Michael Corbett to our, our informal list of podcast guests who make us feel lazy. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael, like, what do you think that the Michael Corbett, who was, uh, albeit in character, scheming and parading around in his skivvies all the time on daytime TV in the 80s, would have thought about where your career was going to take you. Well, one, I would have thought, damn, am I really not going to stay in this amazing shape all my life and I'm going to get older? <laughs> so that's the first one, because, you know, I look back at those photos and I'm like, I got to go back to the gym. It's, you know, it's hard. <laughs> Yeah, you, so, you really look like you've let yourself go, Michael, she said sarcastically. Well, yeah. you know, we all can't be 20 for the rest of our lives. Sure, right. So, you know, there's sure. that realization as we all, you know, naturally get older. Yes, mm -hmm. I still try, you know, I'm going to boot camp. I'm I'm trying. But um, now, you know, I often look back and I hear my dad's words always ring in my head of, you know, get a real job. Mm -hmm. And I and friends always, you know, family members always say, you know, dad, your dad would be very proud of you. So I, I kind of. Uh, I always go back to that. Like, you know, I always have tried, as many of us have, uh, continue to try to prove ourselves to our parents even after they're long gone. Uh, so no, I didn't see, I didn't see any of this coming. I, you know, I just was young and would, wanted to be performing and get out there and make the best of what I had to offer, uh, utilize whatever, you know, monicum of talent I had or brains and try to make the most in the world. So that's what I, you know, we're still, we're all still doing it. It's, right. you know, what we keep trying to do. So no, I didn't, had no idea where my, how my life would turn out. Mm -hmm. um, now on St. Patrick's Day, you um, had a very special celebration. I was there. You, uh, We did not see each other at the YNR 50th anniversary party um, where I was, what a wonderful evening that was. But oh. uh, what was it like for you? And were there any, you know, standout reunions that you had? Oh, for sure. It was like, Time has stood still since I left Young and the Restless. One, I'm still friends with, you know, a lot of a lot of the castmates, but there's some that I hadn't seen. Uh, like for Trisha, for example, I hadn't seen her in, a, in a, quite a while. And it was as if like, oh, hi, how are you? Hey, Trisha, how are you? You know, hugs, kisses, and, and Laura Lee Bell. And, you know, there's Michael Damien and there's Kimberlyn Brown. And it was as if as if no time had passed because it's all the same people. So it was... And I was with Jess. Jess Walton was my date for the night. And it was just an absolutely surreal and remarkable evening because one of the beautiful things about Young and the Restless is it has a continuity. Tracy Bregman. And there's, you know, there's Tracy Bregman and, and, and Chris, Chris, 
Uh, Christopher, um, there it's there's such a longevity and such a loyalty and consistency to the show that you step right back in again. Um, and that's what happened that night. It was just that and seeing everybody again. Um, it was like we were all back in lockstep for for just that moment again. Peter Barton, who I love, and uh, you know, it's just it was it was an amazing night. Plus some of the writers that I used to love and and stage managers. It was it was truly remarkable. Uh, it was a real highlight this year. I agree. You know, everyone on that Hawaii trip was there. I feel like you should have gotten into formation and recreated some of the, the wedding shots, I the wedding party really shots fun, we have. We have one fun picture where it's me, Trisha, Laura Lee, Jess. Um, Gina wasn't there uh, in that picture. But yeah, it was. we were all there. That's what mm -hmm. was so cool. It was like everybody's still there. Yeah, um, really, really and was there that night. So it's really, it was super fun. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, well, this has been such an incredible hour. So much fun. But before we let you go, I know it flew by, uh, but before we let you go, can you, you know, reflect for us just a little bit about how you think that spending some of your formative professional years, if you will, in daytime television, you know, shaped the guy you are and the career that you've had? Um, I, I have to say that being lucky enough to have started first in theater and then going to daytime, they're probably two of the most disciplined um, avenues that you can professionally within the acting world. It's very different. You go in, uh, you do a movie, you do a, a few lines, and then you have a break and then a scene. But with daytime and with a play and with theater, the, the your level of professionalism, there is no compromise you, you know, you're doing eight shows a week on, on, on theater. You have to know your lines. You have to be, you know, you're on for two hours every night. With daytime, you're having pages and pages and pages you have to learn. And you're working with spectacularly committed professional people. So I think from that, I, I've developed a really strong work ethic. Um, and because you, you, there, there, you had no option. You could only do all the work, be on time, uh, be the best you can be 100% of the time, all the time. So that, that I think, has really helped me and taught me many, many lessons and also um, allowed me to have relationships with people. I mean, we just had the Greece Broadway 50th, re 50th year reunion of Greece on Broadway. So anybody that had been in Greece on Broadway um, or the national tour, like that was 50 years ago. And I'm still friends with, not that I was in it 50 years ago. I was more like four, 40 years ago. Um, you know, we have relationships for that that many years from in my, my theater and my soap opera uh, days. So uh, that's I think that's really shaped me into having that sense of history and, and, uh, and a family for many, many, many years. Well, Michael, this has been just so delightful. Uh, we wish you the best of luck at the daytime Emmys and Thank with you. all of the other projects you're working on and count us as two people who hope to see David Kimball back in Genoa City. Because yes. oh, it God. is possible. I <laughs> so, love it. Okay, great. So Thank anyway. you so much. It's a pleasure. Really, really nice to meet you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Michael Corbett for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.